We are in part 19 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, The Faith of friends, and I want to begin with a, a few thoughts that it sounds kind of kind of silly as I began, but I think you'll understand. Uh, are we all mature enough to realize we need friends? Okay, that it's pretty critical, and I and I understand making friends is difficult. Maintaining friendships is difficult, but it's absolutely critical. Unfortunately, we don't tend to know the value until we're up against the wall or we're hurting or whatever, and then we're too desperate, and then it's hard to immediately find a good friend. So we kind of have to invest in friendships as we go along, right? On the good times, we invest in friendships. But the reason why friendships have become even more critical in our world, a lot has to do with what our nation has kind of gone through in our history. So, for example, when we went through the Industrial Revolution, it brought up this new idea of mobility, moving around. So, for example, we had we used to have steamships and then we got trains. Well, then we started getting more individual. Started having cars and we started having planes and we started having these things. And what it did is it made it where everyone could move anywhere at any point. That mobility changed us as a nation, it began to shape how we handle our culture. Give you an example on the powerful impact of this. Um, up until the Vietnam era, servicemen would go over and soldiers would go over and fight a war. And then they would come home slowly. They would come home with the comrades in arms. They would come home with buddies that understood what they went through. They would come home and debrief all along the way. And it took them a while to get home. But in the era of Vietnam, everything changed. Suddenly, we were taking men from the battlefield, and they would get home in a matter of days. They'd get home in a matter of a few weeks. Well, after that, it got even faster and faster and faster. So now you have men doing their job for their country, doing things that no one would ever imagine, and they're home the next day being a caregiver to their children. That type of instant mobility and movement schisms our bodies. We're not able to deal with that very well. And that's why we see a large increase in things like PTSD and challenges there. Uh, we're not built to handle that. Well, in the same way, it is not uh, abnormal for a young couple to say, man, I can't wait till we get married because then... My husband's going to grab a job out in Delaware and we're going to move and start a new life together. That is very common for people to move across the coast or move out of state or military would move every three years. This constant moving, what it does is it uproots and cuts off our support systems. Then all of a sudden too much weight is placed on our marriages where all of a sudden we are now found we're all alone and as romantic as it sounds that we're just going to be together and it's us against the world, that's not realistic or practical. We actually need a whole undergirding system of family and friends just to make it through life. And what's worse is that in my culture where I come from, I come from, I think it's technically called the white bread culture, the Anglo-American culture, right? In our culture... What we say is we value everything independent. 
Well, I can't wait till I can get my own job so I can get my own place so I can get my own car so I can do my own thing and no one can ever tell me what to do. I can demand that I'm completely isolated. Now, other cultures haven't bought into that lie yet. As a matter of fact, there's some other cultures that are really good at community and one culture that comes to mind for me instantaneously is the Latino culture. The Latino culture still has a high value for multi-generations being around each other. They still have a value where if a young woman is growing up and she needs to know some things about changes to her body, changes in her life, and mom's at work, her aunt lives right there. She can still communicate, can still connect. Grandma knows what's going on with her. And the reason why that's important is because someone cares for you and they're within reach. Whereas in other cultures, we just move away and Google it. The problem with Googling answers to your life is they're not watching out for your best interest. And you may or may not get good information. But if you have family or friends around that love you and care for you, they're investing into you and telling you things that are good for your soul, right? So what I've found is that we have to, especially as believers, resist this concept of isolationism. We have to resist the concept of sheer independence. I don't need anyone. I don't need to hassle with all that. People are messy. People are a problem because what we find is we'll pull away from friendships and we'll end up by ourselves. Then our life blows up and there's no one there. That is not acceptable. As a matter of fact, just how we live, how Christ commanded us to live is that we are called to carry other people. We are called to be with other people when they're hurting. Our job is to intercede for them. Our job is to take care of them. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, the Bible says. That means that our job is to make sure other people are okay. It's not just about us. It's about the collective us, if that makes any sense. The story I'm about to share with you epitomizes why this is so powerful, why it's so critical. And so I have a one of, in my opinion, one of the funniest stories in the entire Bible about how this is fleshed out. So let's dive right into it. We have the scriptures on the screens for you because we are blending Matthew, Mark, and Luke today. So let's get a little bit of a context here. And it begins like this. And getting into a boat, he, meaning Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. All right, context, Jesus is back home. Where does Jesus live? Capernaum when he's in town. Now he's traveling kind of preacher guy, but he lives on Peter's couch. So Peter lives in Capernaum. Peter seems to be a bit more wealthy, has a bit of a larger house, and his mother-in-law lives there, his brother Andrew lives there, a bunch of people live in his house. So it seems that Jesus is back home, likely in Peter's home, and he is doing ministry there. Now, the reason why this is important is Jesus was at home a little bit ago, and something incredible happened. The last time he was in Capernaum, He did this incredible healing service. Actually, it was shocking because the Bible says he healed them all. He laid his hands on every single one of them and the entire crowd 
was healed. Now that's very rare. So he does this massive healing ministry. He's casting out demons. He's proclaiming the kingdom. And then after everyone was excited and they went and grabbed their buddies, Jesus got up early in the morning and said, I'm moving on. And they said, you can't move on. Everyone's waiting for you. He said, I'm not concerned about that. I'm moving on. So he left them hanging. So not only do you have all these testimonies of the power of this healing guy and this demon casting guy, and I think he's the Messiah guy, but then when you were excited to go meet him, he disappeared on you. Well, that's going to create a lot of anticipation, right? So he comes back home and everybody's pumped. Everybody's excited. Everybody wants to check up on what's happening. So a massive crowd begins to gather around the house. But then Luke drops this bomb right in the middle of it. Take a look at this next line. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. What? What do you mean? Well, actually, you can read it two ways. You can either read it, and some people do, I don't personally, but some people read this as saying, if you remember, Jesus Christ was in the desert, tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit drove him there. When he emerged out of that to launch his ministry, he was under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he began to do mighty things. So it's saying, and the power of the Lord was still with him throughout this whole process. Maybe Luke is just letting us know that. My problem with that viewpoint is that Luke has already just told us two miracle healing stories of Jesus. Why is he pointing it out again that Jesus has a power to heal if we just talked about Jesus healing someone? That seems kind of silly. So what else could it mean? I would suggest to you that the way I read it is it's saying more about how Jesus healed people than merely stating the fact that Jesus healed people. Here's why. When Jesus was in Nazareth, he had an intriguing interaction with the people. He told this story that ticked them off. He said, back in the days of Elijah and Elisha, two mighty prophets, there was a lot of hurt in Israel, famine, sickness, disease, oppression. Yet God did not send Elijah and Elisha to those Jews to help them. He sent them to foreigners. He healed Naaman the Syrian. He healed the widow of Zarephath in her miracle, right? So he's, what he was saying is because of the unbelief of the Jews, God bypassed them and took his power men over to another area. Now, regardless of what he was saying in the context, which we have already taught, just know this. Prophets don't get to go wherever they want. Prophets go where God directs them. Got it? All right. In that same story, it wraps up by all the people in Nazareth going, well, dance for me. Do a miracle. Do something in our midst so we know that you're legit. And Jesus said, that's not going to happen. And then the commentator said... And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So for whatever reason, the miracles were shut down. Now, whether or not the father pulled the power from Jesus or merely instructed him not to do it, we just know that ministry shut down there. That is very clear. So Jesus did not just get to go and do whatever he wanted to do. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do, and I only do what I see the Father doing. So he's always under the control of the Father. He was setting an example on how we ought to live. Are we all tracking on this? Let me give you another story. 
Jesus, because he was known as a miracle healer, everybody wanted to touch him. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to grab him. They didn't realize he could heal them from a distance, so they tried to go up and rub Magic Lamp Boy. So they're trying to grab his clothes everywhere he goes. So a lot of what the disciples did was security detail. They surrounded him and kept people away from him. That was kind of part of their gig. So he's walking through the narrow streets and everybody's jamming and grabbing him and touching him, bumping into him and everything. And yet a woman who was bleeding for 12 years sneaks through the crowd, says, if I touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. Somehow she gets through. That's determination. She gets in there, touches him. It says, and he felt power go out from him, stops and says, who touched me? Well, security detail, the guys are like, uh, what do you mean? You mean everybody, right? We've all been touching you, dude. What are you talking about? What do you mean someone touched you? Of course they touched you. We're all crowded in here. And Jesus said, what? No, that was different that time. Now, what's fascinating about this is I immediately go into this question. Are you telling me that everyone else that touched Jesus in that day or that moment was perfectly healthy and whole? No, obviously they all had needs. That's why they're touching him. But none of them were healed but that woman. Why? What I think is fascinating is that I believe this phrase is saying this. And in this place, the father said, and we're on. Let's go. So whatever was about to occur here, everything was ready to go. It was prepped and loaded because the father said yes. If the father says no, the answer is no, regardless. Are we all tracking on that? All right, fantastic. Four of you are. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's go to the next slide. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, this is pretty awesome. Everybody's captured by his storytelling, his sharing. They know he possibly could be the Messiah. They know he's talking on God's behalf. He speaks with incredible authority. And here he is doing one of the three major things that he does. Because his ministry was defined by preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, and casting out demons. So here he's doing the preaching part of it, and he's sharing what God is like. Now that's incredible. He's sharing the gospel, sharing that God loves his people, sharing that God is chasing after you, sharing that there's forgiveness and a new way of doing things and a new covenant that is happening. He's sharing all this glory, but I look at it from a practical human standpoint and I would wonder this. Imagine you came into that crowd not knowing too much about Jesus and you wanted to get healed. Can you imagine how agitated you are because he keeps talking? You understand what I mean? Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. You're going, la, 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 la. Can we get to the preaching part, the healing? Can we, I, I'm here for the healing, and you keep talking. Can we just get to that part? That's more important. What I feel like the response would be from Jesus is, hold up, why is that more important? What are you saying? I'm missing this. What I'm talking about is eternal life. What I'm talking about is the very word of God. What I'm talking about is how you can be transformed and live a whole new existence. What I'm talking about is heaven kingdom concepts. And you keep talking to me about your physical body that's going to pass away. So no, I don't think you understand it very well. Let's make the first things first. I'm talking about my father and his will. Right? 
But do you understand how our human nature kind of gets agitated? And we're like, no, 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 this is more important. This... No, it's not. Stop. God knows what he's doing. Then it says this. And behold, everybody know that word? Seriously, check this out, right? All right, good, good. That's the definition. I'll write that down. And behold, four men were bringing or carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. All right, let's talk about disability in the ancient world. Uh, if you are disabled in modern day, it's brutal. Uh, there are some suggestions, and I would agree to this. There are some suggestions that he was a quadriplegic, which means he cannot move his arms or his legs. So from the neck down, he is paralyzed. If you are a quadriplegic in any environment, it's incredibly challenging. If you are a paraplegic and have your legs gone from you, it's incredibly challenging. I do not want to diminish that in any way, shape, or form that no matter what era you live in, it is hard and it's miserable and it's challenging. Okay? However, I will suggest this to you. In the ancient world, I am quite sure historically the American Disabilities Act was not in force. The reason why I mention this is there are no wheelchairs. There are no ways to get in and out of buildings. There are no ramps. There are no access for you. As a matter of fact, you are carried everywhere. Now, if you are disabled, you already feel like, man, I'm probably a burden to my friends and I'm already feeling guilty about that. Imagine having to be carried physically everywhere you go. Most people, when they were handicapped, they were lifted, carried, and left there all day long because other people had stuff to do. So this whole challenge of I can't get around, I can't do anything, that creates a lot of hurt on your spirit. Not only that, but he, this guy is in a Jewish culture. The Jewish culture looks at the Old Testament and reads it like this. The only reason that you're broken is because you sinned. It's the only reason why bad stuff happens to you. So, obviously, you did something super bad to be paralyzed. The entire community looks at you that way. What did you do? Remember when Job was having a hard time? All of his friends said the same thing. What did you do so bad that God hates you? So now he has a religious, oppressive environment on top of, man, I can't get anywhere, I'm miserable. This guy's life is really hard. What made the difference in this story? His friends. He's got four friends. Now, we're going to go ahead and play this story out. Um, let's just say, for example, we'll use, uh, I don't know, we can use any names. Let's say the guy on the mat's name is Gary, right? And then his, the, the main ringleader of his buddy's name is Rick. So this is kind of how I would picture this going. So Rick and all the crew come in, they knock on the door to Gary's house, and they said, Gary, dude, you ready to go? And he's like, go where? We're going to see Jesus today. No, we're not. Yeah, actually we are, dude. We're going to see Jesus because he's a healer, right? And you need to be healed. So we're going to go to that. And then at that point, uh, Gary's going to go, you know what? I don't want to go. I don't want to go into that environment where everyone judges me and everyone keeps saying what's wrong with you. And they're like, you're unclean, you're unclean. And they don't want to touch me. And then there's always all this hassle and everybody's constantly on my case. You guys, I don't want to go. This is what I think happened. That I think that Rick said, 
Matt, grab his legs. We're going anyway. That's what I think happened, right? Why? Because there are certain friends that you have in your life, which uh, one of the pastors on our staff calls 2 a.m. friends. You know what a 2 a.m. friend is? That's when they call through at 2 a.m. There's no way you want to talk to them, but you have to because of who they are. So normally you would go deny, 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 right? But that person, you're like, what? What do you want, right? You'll answer their call because they have a whole different level of connection. Well, some friends like these guys go, I'm not taking no for an answer, dude. We're going to get next to Jesus. And guess what? You can't stop us, right? So they're grabbing his stretcher and they pick him up and he's like, I don't want to go. I didn't do my hair. And they're, you know, they're running him out of the building and they're going to take him to get him next to Jesus. That's what kind of friends these guys are. Are we all tracking on that? All right. And then here's the challenge I would have for you. Can you fix your friend's pain? Like right now, your friend is hurting. Can you fix it? Because if you can fix it, fix it. That's what the Bible says. If your friend has a need and they're hurting and you can fix it, do something about it. If it's healthy boundaries, right? But what if you can't? Then what's your mandate next? Get them to someone who can. How do we get people to Jesus nowadays? We don't just pick them up on a stretcher and move them over to Fair Oaks. What we do is we pray. You get your friends to God via prayer. It's intercession. If you're not praying for your friends, what do you think you're doing? Are you really just letting them suffer? Are you really just saying, man, that's right, your life does stink. Dang, that is hard for you. I'm depressed just thinking about you. Okay, that's not helpful. Why are you not interceding for them? Why are you not praying for them? Why are you not constantly going, God, can you, can you help him? Can you help him? Can you help him? Can you help him? And then when he says no, you go, well, how about now? 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 And at some point, Jesus is like, you're irritating, right? <laughs> but the idea is that's what Jesus said. That's how we pray is this constant intercession for one another. You can't fix it, but God can. So it's your job as a friend to intercede for your friend. You understand what I'm talking about? All right. Look at the next page, next uh, paragraph. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, finding no way to bring him in, they went up on the roof and removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down on his bed on which he lay through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. I don't think that's normal. (laughs) So in my little brain, that's hilarious. Here's how I think it went. They arrive in, Gary's on the mat, right? And he's laying down and he's like, you guys, see, I told you. And they're like, well, you're the one that made us late. So obviously we can't get in. And they're checking and moving around and everything. Well, then sure enough, Rick, who's leading it, is like, you guys, you guys, you guys, we got to think of it. Okay, I have an idea. And they're like, well, what's your idea? And, the, and the Gary is, uh, well, anyway, Rick says, uh, let's go up on the roof. Well, what's Gary going to be saying? Dude, Matt dropped me last time. Do you really think that I'm going to go up on the roof? Dude, you can't even carry me in normal land. Much less, now we're going on the roof. Okay, I can't even break my fall, Jack. So as far as this whole idea of you carrying me up on the roof, I don't like that plan. Well, do they ever care what he says? No, of course they don't. So they go up on the roof, and then they're like, all right, genius, what are we doing now? 
And he's like, we're going through the roof. Check that out. And they're like, what? You can't just go through the roof of a guy you don't even know. That's weird. And so the way the roofs were constructed is you had poor man's house or rich man's house. Poor man's house was being stretched across. And then you would dry big tablets of clay, lay them over, and then you'd cover it with twigs and branches and everything. That was poor man's house. Rich man's house was then you would have these clay tablets or tiles that you would lay all over it and you would seal it across for rainwater and it was strong enough for people to go up and walk on and kind of lay and sleep there at night. It was another room. I would suggest to you that's the room that we're talking about. They're now up on the roof and they got to get down through the roof. With what? I have no idea. But they're like, wham, they're slamming through. Now everyone can hear them because they're in the house and it's right above who? Jesus. Now we all know the law of gravity, right? Even as much as you try to pull up, how much debris is falling down the entire time? And not only that, you don't get to make a little hole and drop him through vertically. He'll slide off. You have to open a dude size hole. You know what I mean? Like a wide, long stretcher size hole because he's got to go down horizontal. Now, how long does that take? I have no idea. How disruptive is that? Extremely. The whole time Jesus is like, the kingdom of God is like, and tiles are falling and everything. And he's like, hold up, hold up. Let's wait for that to stop. Everybody's mad. What do you think if this is Peter's house? What do you think Peter was thinking? <laughs> Peter's not exactly Mr. Calm and Collected. Do you think he's like, you're going to pay for that, man? You know what I mean? Just like, what do you think you're doing tearing my roof apart, right? And so they're ripping the roof off, which all that material has to be replaced. And then they're going to lower him down. With what? That was never the plan when they left the house. What do they got that they're going to lower this guy down with? So he's like, Matt, take off your shirt. Right? It's this, let's tie it together and make this little thing and everyone's taking off their shirt and they're, they're like lowering him down the best way they can. He's like, they're going to drop me, they're going to drop me, they're going to drop me. And they're lowering him down through the roof and he's going down in little baby increment. Just a little, like six inches at a time. And everyone below is like, come on! Man, can we just get through with this? It's ridiculous. A little bit more. Finally, he lowers him down to Jesus' viewpoint. And then Gary on the mat goes, hi. Like, gosh, I am, I am so sorry. <laughs> and Jesus goes, hi, how are you? Right? And, and look, this is what is so cool. Look at the next line. It says this. And when he saw what? Their faith. He wasn't looking at the paralytic. He was looking at all the boys up on the roof that didn't come down through. And they're up there high five and going, yeah, we did it. Check that out. Right? None of them have shirts on. They're just they're all sweaty. And the bottom line is Jesus looks up and he's going, nicely done, gentlemen. Like you were so determined to get this man near me. And he saw their faith and it changed their buddy. Are we all tracking on that? We always do this whole thing about, well, the individual's faith and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot more going on. What about the fact that these guys wouldn't take no for an answer? That's pretty impressive. When he saw their faith, there are some things that we think in our heads, man, that would be a good idea. And we always get stopped by this next phrase. Probably wouldn't work anyway. Probably wouldn't matter anyway. Right? And we never act out on it. That's not faith. That's just a good idea. 
There are certain things that we put into action. That's faith. That's a whole different process. And so what did Jesus say? Look at the next line. And he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, and your sins are forgiven you. Ricochet effect from his buddies to blessing him. Then what I think is fascinating is the word technon, my son. Most every time that is used, it means my literal blood son. How gentle and kind was that? This guy is wondering if God hates him. You left me like this. I live in this world. My life is miserable. God, you must hate me. And Jesus said, well, actually, I'm God, and I don't hate you at all. I love you. And I want you to know, my son, it's all right. I got you. That sweetness, that kindness, then leads him to say this phrase, your sins are forgiven you. Now, in a church setting, that sounds like, oh, that's awesome. But imagine what Gary's thinking. My what? what? Why are we talking about my sins? Dude, I got here because I'm paralyzed. Why are we not talking about my paralysis? Why are we talking about my sins? There's a whole group of people staring at me about like it had something to do with my sin. Why are we addressing this right now? Can't we get to the more important part? Do you understand how many times we immediately jump to what we think is more important? Once again, Jesus has to remind us and say, stop going to the easier lighter. What I'm talking about is forgiveness of his soul. Whether or not you have a healthy body going to hell does not impress me. If you have a broken body going to heaven, that impresses me. So I need to talk to you about the deeper need. I know why you're here. I just know what you need. So therefore, I'm going to address the deeper need. You, my son, need to be clean. You, my son, need to be forgiven. Whether you can walk or not is not ultimately the issue. The issue is, do you know me? I'm telling you who I am. I'm telling you that I will heal you. I'm telling you that I will save you. That's more important. And then take a look at the next passage. And behold... Seriously, check this out. Now, some of the scribes and the Pharisees who were sitting there began to question in their hearts, saying to themselves, why does this man speak like that? Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, a lot of times the Pharisees get it wrong. This one they got right. This is absolutely accurate. The only person that can forgive is a person that has been violated. Okay? So, for example, let's say I got a buddy named Bob, right? And someone, one of you, comes up and punches Bob in the face. Now, that's not very nice. But then later on, I come to you and I go, hey, totally forgive you. Wait, what? You can't, I can't forgive you for what you did to Bob. Bob has to forgive you. He was the one violated. Well, all sins are against God. So no other human being can forgive you, only God alone. So they got that right. The problem was they were talking to God, right? That kind of screwed up their argument. It says this, immediately when Jesus perceived and knew their thoughts in his spirit, he answered them, why do you question and think evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Meaning in Jesus' economy, the healing part was easy. Like, man, that's cake. What, you think I can't heal this guy? We're talking about the deeper issue of saving a soul. Yeah, I can do that. But why was it harder or easier in our minds? Because anyone can say anything. Any fake fraud, whatever, can say, oh, this magically is happening in the spirit. You have no way of holding them accountable for that. 
But what if he says this person is healed? Now you're held accountable. Now you better put up or shut up, right? It's the idea of, are you legit or not? Look at Jesus' response. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Almost as an afterthought. Oh, by the way, let's get to the paralysis thing. Just as an example that I did the deeper healing, let me tell you the cheap, easy healing that I can do. Hey, you're good. Get up and go home. I find that incredible. I find that that the purpose, the deepest purpose of all miracles, of all healing, of all salvation, of all transformation is always the same. Glorification of God. If God is not glorified, we lose every time. If God is not glorified, we failed. I don't care what happened because we exist to glorify God. That is the whole reason for our being, the whole reason for our world. But then my mind immediately tracked on the fact of why did he tell him to pick up his mat and go home? Why does Jesus care about litter? Why is Jesus saying, hey, take your stuff, man. Come on, let's pick up after ourselves, all right? Why is he saying that? And you go, well, that's just kind of a, a side note. No, this happens three times in scripture. Jesus tells two different guys to do this. Then when Peter does it, he copies Jesus and tells the paralyzed guy to take up his mat and go home. Why is everyone telling him to take up their mat and go home? Now, I understand at the pool of Bethesda where the guy was trying to save his spot and get into the water to get healed, and he had been waiting years to get next to the pool, that when Jesus healed him, Jesus said, you need to take this. You don't need to save your spot anymore, dude. I got you. We're good. And he never needed to come back again. I understand that. But why is this guy taking his bed and going home? Is it, and I don't know the answer, I'm guessing, is it because immediately Jesus said, I'm healing you that you might get to work. I'm healing you that you might be able to do things you would always long to do. So let's get up and do something because work is not bad. Frustration of work is bad. Adam and Eve before sin had a job to do and they loved it in the garden. That's not a problem. God heals so that we might get to kingdom business. So he allows this man to immediately do something useful. Is that it? Or is it possible that it's just emotional healing? Hey, pick up and grab the thing that once carried you. And now you're a master over that because I set you free. Now walk that out. Is that why? Is it a stone of remembrance where you take that mat home, you tack that on your wall and say, I once was that, but because of Jesus, I am this. Is that why? Is it sheer practicality of going, hey, dude, I get the fact that you're all excited about getting healed, but you got to lay on something tonight. So, hey, grab your bed and just take it home with you. All right. You don't need to buy another one. Let's just use this one. That's fine. Maybe the guy wasn't wealthy. Or maybe it was merely an act of faith. Jesus required a lot of acts of faith of saying, get up and do something that you could never do before. And now we'll know, look, you're good. You just proved it to yourself. It became real to you that I have moved in your life. I don't know why, but all I'm pointing out to you is there's all these deeper levels that are going on all the time with what Jesus is doing. Then it says this, and immediately he rose up before them and immediately picked up his bed that he had been lying on and went out before them all. And he went home glorifying God. That's the highest healing. He went from God hates me, I'm abandoned, to my Jesus loves me, and I'm okay. There was a transformation of his spirit that was right. And the deepest healing was done. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because it's freaky. 
Do you understand the majority of the Bible is weird? Being around Jesus is weird, totally uncomfortable, outside your box, messy, crazy, bizarre. Somehow we cleaned it up and sanitized it, and that's inappropriate. It was messy and bizarre. When they saw it, they were afraid, and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. Oh, now we got the crowd going. Who had given such authority to men, and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. We never saw anything like this. Why? Because it's weird. Here's my point. That man received so many different levels of touch from God because his buddies carried him there. Are you that friend? Do you have those friends? Are you developing those friends? Or are you allowing the enemy to completely isolate you? Because that's the easiest way to take you out. You know that. Well, you know what? I'm older now and I don't really need to play the whole game of friends. Oh, you need them more than ever. Well, you know what? I'm a guy and guys don't really hang out at Starbucks and talk about our feelings. Okay. I get it. I get it. I understand I cannot be a role model because I'm barely a man myself. I'm mostly a girl. I get it. All right. But even real men have friends. All right. I don't know. Do something like punch each other in the face. I don't know. Do whatever you're going to do. You got to have friends. You got to have people around you. I received an email this morning from Ruth Velatini. She was here last night and heard the message and she wanted to send me an encouragement. She said, thank you for the message. It just reminded me of my husband, Pete. Now, if you remember, Dr. Pete was a guy we prayed for as a congregation. He was um, a healthy young man, very active, had two, had two little ones. And he suddenly came down with a shocking illness out of nowhere. It was like a meningitis concept where it just comes in, hits you, and then he can't breathe. He can't do anything. He was completely, we all thought that he was going to pass away. We went and prayed over him in the hospital. He has tubes everywhere and he was looking really bad. So we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. Well, then I remember at our last healing and worship night last year, he came in in a cane and he was walking. And I was like, this is incredible. God is moving. But if you remember the story, it was so powerful because his small group stayed with him every night. They rotated out. So he always had a friend that was interceding for him, loving on him and just hanging out at the hospital. So Ruth said, I just want to point out that story is our story. Our friends did that for us. And she said, and this morning, Sunday morning, the morning we're here right now, they're going to cheer on Pete as he finishes a hundred mile bike ride. You understand what I'm talking about? From death's door to something I will never do. The power of God. Glory to God. Yeah? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what an amazing, amazing God you are. We give you all the glory and praise and thanksgiving, and we tell you, Lord, we get it. We're hearing it loud and clear. We know we need to invest in our relationships. We know we need friendships. We can't do this alone. God, you move through each one of us to each other. We, we agitate, we encourage, we strengthen, we pray for. But God, some of us don't understand the power of interceding for one another. Some of us here, Lord, don't understand that prayer matters and that you're listening to your kids. 
and that you will move on their behalf if it's right and good. So, Lord God, we just ask that you would be glorified through our relationships, that you would knit us together, that you would rise us up as a mighty family, watching out for one another, loving each other, not being caught up in silly things, but, Lord, being focused on who you are. So, God, be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.